Hey everyone, my name is Walton and this is the Black Realities Podcast. On this episode, I will be talking to a registered therapist, Corey Fitzgerald from um, CAPS at Brown University. And uh, we will be talking about the kind of experiences of black folks and black grad students especially and mental health. Um, I also just want to take a moment to highlight that this month is uh, Suicide Awareness Month um, in the USA. And so just take the opportunity to clean as much as you can from my conversation with Corey um, and reach out to the people who might need you, but also turn towards yourself and, and really check in on yourself and how you are doing. Um, I also wanted to start this podcast by speaking a bit about myself and my experience of, of mental illness. Um, in 2013, I think, I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder. This had come after a long struggle with bouts of depression, bouts of mania. And for me, my mania showed up as um, irritability, aggression, um, violent outbursts to, um, in, in situations that, that was stressful and caused, um, and triggered me. Um, and so it was a long, it was a long and, and expensive really journey toward finding some sort of therapeutic healing. Um, I spent years in, in therapy, in counseling and in, in psych- psychiatry. I was um, hospitalized multiple times, um, for weeks on end for, um, for kind of either feeling suicidal or going into a depressive state or going into a manic state. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, I'm very open with this and, I, and I, I'm willing to speak to anybody about this, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that mental illness affects anyone and everyone and it can have devastating effects, but it can also be treated and it can also be handled. Um, I also wanted to to take a moment and think about some of the musicians who are staples in our lives, who have dealt with, had to deal with, um, and lived with mental illness. And I'm thinking specifically about the cases of Nina Simone, Donny Hathaway, Kid Cudi. Um, Nina Simone was diagnosed with bipolar and she was, she was medicated for um, a long period of time. And the difficulty with, with any kind of mood disorder is that once you start to feel better on the medication or the therapy, you start to think that you don't need it anymore. And so I think from what I've read, that's uh, Nina Simone and Donny Hathaway's cases were similar in that sense, in that they felt better and decided that maybe 
maybe they can go off for a while and come back on later at another point, which is something that I did as well. Not that I'm trying to compare myself to them. Um, but just to, just to say that it's ex an extremely difficult balancing act for anyone. Um, Donny Hathaway was diagnosed with severe depression, but he also had um, a schizophrenia diagnosis. And that, of course, came with its own devastating difficulties. Um, he lived with deep paranoia uh, of white people, and there's uh, there's something there's something in there there's something there's something to be said about what is going on in that state um, that whiteness is the trigger for schizophrenia for his schizophrenia, but yeah, I'm not saying that that it is to blame. But rather that um, that we have a lot that we have to deal with um, as black folk, and oftentimes it manifests detrimentally for us. Um, and then, of course, in the contemporary moment, someone who has struggled publicly with uh, mental illness is Kid Cudi, who has spent years dealing and battling with with depression. Um, and I think him being so open about it has been a saving grace for many people. And I hope a lot more people will seek out help because of him. Um, yeah. And I think I think that like also a fourth case maybe that, that I didn't really want to bring up, but that I'm going to anyway, is the case of Kanye West, who is for me, or really has always been someone I, I looked up to musically. And in recent years, obviously that has changed. But I think he's, he's, he's a case where we have to think about the behaviors we excuse because of um, a mental illness diagnosis and the difficulties in that, because I was I wasn't always innocent in my behaviors, and I, I couldn't always be I couldn't always blame my behaviors on my mental illness. Yes, I was I was under the influence of like some fucked up brain chemistry, but I was also making choices in that process um, and so like my my violent outbursts towards people and my um, destructive behavior within my friendships um, these things were choices that I also had a part in it wasn't just something that I relented to my mental illness and therefore these behaviors happen. Um, so, yeah, maybe just also to to end off on a on another note before we go into the interview with Corey. I think that um, like hope and this possibility even in mental illness. 
friends like you you have hope and you're not alone in dealing with this yeah you're not alone in de dealing with this sometimes it takes time and it takes financial investment and time investment but yeah you can you can keep working through so yeah i hope you find some value in the interview with Corey Fitzgerald and i hope you enjoy the first episode of this podcast series which i hope will only continue to get better and to grow as we go along in the weeks so thank you for listening uh, like subscribe follow me on instagram at black oralities or on twitter at black oralities um, and yeah let's continue the conversation online so um i think like there's there are questions and like talking points that um i think we can use as jumping off points but again like you just feel free to to um say what you need to say um and and i'll facilitate and guide as much as i can um so maybe we can just jump straight into it and i'll say that before um our conversation i, I had a, i have another part of this episode of the podcast where i'm speaking about um three musicians who had who have or had lifelong battles with mental illness to varying degrees. So I spoke about uh, Nina Simone and Donny mm -hmm. Hathaway and uh, Kid Cudi, who's, um, you know, contemporary um, artist and kind of just spend some time speaking through um, the, the difficulties that, that, that they faced because central to my podcast is actually going to be the theme of sound and sonics in in the black world and so mm. entering the conversation about mental health through the lives of musicians um i thought would be a a, a good way to to start mm. so i think maybe we can begin by oh i also say that i i did speak a bit about my own experience as a person living with um bipolar disorder for uh diagnosed for about 10 nine ten years now um but probably you know once you start to think back on it you like i think there were other times in my life where this wasn't yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so so I, I just to give context i spoke a bit about um a bit about that as well so maybe i can ask you to speak on um as a black therapist what do you think are some of the things that are unique um to black folk and you touched on you touched on um police brutality for instance and and how how do we think about psychic violence but also kind of the unique the unique experience of uh mental illness for black people yeah well i <clears throat> what i will say is that i think um, there are a lot of people out there who are bringing um, uh, renewed awareness to um, what it means to be black and what it means to experience uh, 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 mental health 
in whatever way that means for them. I think that for the longest time, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was centered. Our voices were not centered. That aspect of our health was definitely not uh, centered. And I think with, with just the way 2020 is, is currently playing out and um, the activists and the work that they're doing, um, just to raise uh, uh, social consciousness around people, like who, who, who are uh, Breonna Taylor, who are George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, those kind of people. I, I think that there is this sort of renewed sense of, so we now have to center this because I think it's black people. Um, we experience, you know, they're, they're those sociological terms like the double bind, the triple bind, the mother mm-hmm. bind here. I, I definitely think that they're living in America. There is like this black bind. I think we are working against uh, racism. We're working against um, systematic uh, oppressions. We're working against um, sort of now this wave of neoliberal liberalism, especially where we are. I think um, um, we're working within institutions um, and against all of these things all at the same time. And I think um, over time that that tends to degrade people. And I think that we have to then sort of be the, like if you look through a political lens, um, black, black women in particular, um, they show up strong for us. We have to look at them and say, okay, we'll show up strong for us now in 2020, but also we're not gonna really care about um, your mortality rate in birth, you know? Mm-hmm. How, how can we have both? And I think that uh, in so many ways, black people find themselves, um, or oh, not find themselves, reframe. They, we are placed in these positions to have to um, sort of look out for ourselves, be our biggest advocate, our biggest, uh, the mouthpiece for our people, but also um, sort of secretly and in, in, in a lot of ways silently deal with these, uh, the effects of all these systems which we are trying to, um, in some people's minds, change and some in others overthrow for the good of, of, of us being here and for the uh, equality and equity of everyone. Um, but it's, I think it's difficult. And I think that what we're noticing is that for a lot of people and, and be it either, some people may say times are changing, but we are becoming more vocal about that. And for whatever reason we may attribute that, whether it is this uh, social justice tide, whether it is more people being just vocal about their own mental health journeys. It's something that I'm happy about, but it's definitely something that um, is unique to the Black experience for sure. Yeah. And I, uh, maybe to take that question further also is to then think about the kind of the real the real impact of these things on black students who are, you know, make up a large portion of the people you work with. I'm just assuming it. Um, but uh, thinking about what the, um, what the experience of, of black students is at the moment um, and the kinds of difficulties that you see arising um, in their lives right now or over the past year, really. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. University is a weird, a weird psychologically a, a strange thing to uh, encounter sometimes. I think mm-hmm. that it is. Uh, I, I, you know, I think I, I'll actually draw upon sort of my year because I've worked at Brown for a year this month actually, and um, previously I worked at Mississippi State University where 
Um, they had a, a, a much larger uh, uh, student body who, who identified as black or who were black. You know, I think that the way I see that in a lot of my black students is, um, especially now, a lot of people, so for instance, if we go back a month or so, a lot of uh, the university included, um, they put out their diversity statements or sometimes, you know, updated or they renewed those diversity mm. statements. For a lot of my students, um, that felt great for them. They, they wanted that representation. They wanted to know that those companies, the institutions that they are affiliated with, um, were uh, thinking about those issues and they were, they were noticing the things that were going on. I think for another uh, group of my students that I serve, that wasn't the case. I think for a lot of them, it felt like, well, this is what we've been saying from the get-go and you just arrived. Like we've been, mm. you just showed up. Mm -hmm. And it, it almost felt performative in a way. And I think that, I, I think both of those claims are important. I think, yes, I, from, from a institutional perspective, I don't, I don't say that I'm a part of an institution, but I, I mean, I work for one, right? So um, we, we wanted to do that, especially in CAPS, we wanted to do that to show, yes, we, we take diversity, inclusion, um, um, social justice lens. We, we take that kind of work extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it came from a place for us um, and wanting to convey that message to our students at such an important time. I also think that for a lot of my, especially my grad students that I see, it, it's almost like they now have to, in, in addition to sort of dealing with, you know, how do I feel that now this is becoming more visible, yet I've been saying this from the beginning, that's one camp, but also how do I now navigate my spaces? Because now we're all looking towards our black friends to educate us. And we know it's like a trope that we, we um, have identified as a microaggression. Yeah. And, and I think those are difficult places to be. Like, you know, you're looking around and you're noticing maybe you're the only black person in your department. So mm -hmm. when I have these conversations, well, a lot of people feel like they, it's about them. Because when you look around mm -hmm. a case, you know, why, why wouldn't you feel that way? So I, I definitely have seen that in some of my grad students. I've seen just... Uh, that racial battle fatigue that we know all too well um, of having to have these conversations. Like every time a black person is killed or shot, we have to reprocess it with every white friend in our contact list that blows us up. We have to, right. you know what I mean? We have to right. yeah. get perspective over and over again from departmental chairs, from, from advisors who probably mean really well. But I think that, for, for some of the students uh, who I serve and just even in, in, in previous roles, not affiliated uh, with Brown, that, that can become a lot. And, it, and, and for some of them, it feels performative. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, some feel validated in that and feel seen, but sometimes it, it feels performative. And that within itself sort of continues to, um, I, I really do think, work against us um, right. on mental health. Right. And... I mean, you are one of a small handful of uh, black mem uh, staff members at, at CAPS at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I imagine that there's, whether it's purposeful or not, there's a kind of added weight that, that happens 
as as a black totally. person in a space like that at the university like brown mm-hmm. um yeah anyway i just that's just an an observation a thing that i think about often really when people come to me and ask about who they should go speak to um at caps and um but i was i was also wondering if you could talk more in depth about something that you identify as one of your um fields of interest which is anxiety um and i was really thinking a lot about the fact that we're entering into the new academic year and mm-hmm. um how anxiety does show up and will show up in the coming weeks um in people and so maybe just um maybe you can just speak a bit to some of the signs um that we should look out for in ourselves but also in in our, our uh friends or family members um how do we how do we start to think about anxiety um and and not just think about it as oh it's just nerves it's just something mm-hmm. that's uh i'm i'm just a little bothered right now but i'm fine i haven't slept yeah slept well for a few nights but it's okay it's not that right. big a deal right. um yeah maybe you yeah, can so, say some about yeah I, I i definitely um have always had an interest in anxiety so even back in um, my practicum experience uh because i mean let's be honest i was anxious anxious as hell i was like well i'm in school <laughs> i'm working I, i'm trying to do a, have a social um life i'm trying to have a dating life like all these things it's a lot to juggle. And, and, and on top of that, I'm a black man in America. That's a lot within itself. Um, and I was a black gay man, you know, in America, I think that speaks for mm-hmm. it. Um, I think with those identities comes a lot of anxiety, um, just due to the regionality, just due to the intersections of those identities. Um, and that sort of took me down that path of being interested in anxiety. So whenever I start to delve, uh, uh, a little deeper into that in grad school, it definitely popped out as one of those lasting um, um, clinical interests, um, sort of pivoting, pivoting a bit to uh, uh, looking uh, or seeing signs in other people and our loved and dear ones. You know, one of the things that I say to all my clients when they come in, um, your presentation of anxiety, depression, uh, a bipolar diagnosis, um, a schizophrenic diagnosis, schizophrenia diagnosis, it will not be exactly the same in every single person. Sometimes a person will walk in and say, textbook, completely clear, broad as day. I don't even have to really think too much about that. Sometimes a person, sometimes I may be working with a client and I say, you know, um, there are features of depression, but I don't think it's full-blown depression. Something else occurs. And I'm like, no, this is depression. Um, with that, with the with us as, as beings being multifaceted, I think what's really important to remember is that that I that sort of um, uh, Google web search idea about anxiety probably won't match what a person feels uh, to the T. So since we're experiencing a lot of isolation, me, myself, I live alone. I don't see many people. Uh, I see my boyfriend, but that's about it. Um, You know, outside of that, how does that show up? Are you finding yourself to be more irritable? fatigued? Are you overeating? Are you undereating? Are you um, um, engaging in less uh, things um, that once brought you happiness? 
I think all of those things, though they may sound, you know, like textbook depression, those also could be ways that people uh, may experience anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. in and to, or maybe outside of the racing thoughts, the clammy palms, uh, the, you know what I mean? All those oh, oh, uh, uh, very uh, real somatic symptoms of anxiety. Um, one of the best ways I think, and one of the best tools that we have in our, uh, um, at our disposal to um, sort of be, be there in the moment and be present and mindful about any uh, emotional changes um, or mental health changes with our loved and dear ones is just asking, you know? I think one, us asking, how are you, you know? How are you doing? Tell me about your day. How, what was your week like? And when you hear that information, it's just not like, okay, cool. You have a life. It's, uh, that actually sounds kind of different than what you normally do. Normally mm-hmm. for a run every morning, what's up with that? Normally you told me you would speak to your mom, you know, on the phone because she like, you're worried about her like at least once a week. What's up with that? You didn't tell me anything about walking your dog. What's up with that? You know, I think especially meeting the moment of not only COVID, but also um, this uh, uh, general sense of renewed uh, vigor towards social justice, we have to be that detailed in asking people, you know, how we're doing. It can't just be, oh, I'm great, thanks. You, you know what I mean? It has, right. to, it has to be authentic. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that, I think that has shown up in, in my life really with, um, with, some, with my friends back home in South Africa, but also with, with people I've become close to over the last year, my first year in the States. Um, it's become evident that we've had to check in on each other in um, very different, more intentional ways. And you can't, you know, it's not enough to have the throwaway lines of like, oh, I'm fine and, and just carry on with the day. Um, which is also a difficult thing sometimes to to be able to say like, actually, you know, things have not been looking that bright these last couple of days or whatever. Um, yeah. I also, I also wonder about um, modes of, of treatment for something like anxiety. Um, and I, I think I'm focusing on anxiety just because of where we are in the cycle of the year right now. Um, but feel free to speak about, about anything really that you want to, but just, uh, the, the question really is like how, how we deal with anxiety once it shows up and how we, so we speak to a therapist, but, but, uh, what else, you know, what other tools do we have at our disposal? Right. And, and, you know, so one of the first things that I'll say is speaking to a therapist, great. You know, I, I want to still be employed. Yes. Cause I, I, I <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I also think that um, a lot of that work could also be self-motivated and self-directed. So for instance, um, even me, I'm a, I'm, I'm a normal person on this earth. When I feel anxiety, one of the first things I say, and some of the same things I, 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 I um, um, tell my clients from an evidence-based um, approach is we first have to note it. So for a lot of people, sometimes we can go on autopilot and we may not even know we're anxious. So what that tells me is that we need to slow down and become a little bit more mindful, raise our consciousness around how does anxiety show up for me in my particular way? 
One of the best ways I tell clients to do that is by asking yourself throughout the day, how am I feeling? You know, how am I doing? It may, I may wake up in the morning. I may lay in the bed, read the news on my phone or whatever. And then before I get out of bed, I may say, how am I doing in this moment? What do I need in this moment? Am I tired? Mm -hmm. Is the room too cold? Um, am I hungry for something in particular? Do I feel extra, like, do I feel loved in this moment? Do I feel happy in this moment? Um, am I thinking about what's uh, on the agenda for my day? If so, how might I approach that in a way that is as calm as possible? Um, so that first piece really is raising awareness and really being more mindful so that we're not on autopilot, not really understanding what anxiety is. Once that awareness has been raised and we've, we've, we have identified um, possible things that makes uh, us anxious or things that are on our minds in that moment, I think that's when, yes, we can then move to, okay, so if it is something that is irrational, maybe reframing that and grounding it back to the truth. So maybe this morning when I checked in with myself as I was drinking my morning tea, I realized, huh, I'm really anxious about, um, I don't know, a test or something, I don't know, uh, a test I have today. Okay, explore it. In that moment, ask yourself those leading questions. Turn into, in your mind, a reporter or, or someone uh, who you like, I always think like Olivia Pope because that, that woman, like she could ask some great questions. Um, go down that, uh, that line of thought and say, okay, so is this fear uh, rational? If not, okay, why is it not? Okay, maybe it's not rational because, well, you've studied 10 hours for a test that really may only be five questions and it's open book, okay? Mm. So then ask yourself, well, yes, do you have, um, is your fears valid? Yeah, because nobody wants to fail, but are they rational? No. So in that moment, we've just realized changing the situation, because I can't change the fact that I have a test, that can't happen. So therefore, I must change my response to it. That's when we move to that phase of, okay, well, let's act on it. Am I going to remind myself of the things that I've done to prepare for this test? So when I notice that anxiety bubble up in me, am I going to say, okay, I get that I'm anxious. It makes sense. This matters to me, but I studied 10 hours. That's a long time for a test. You know, mm -hmm. I studied for a week. That's a long time. Am I going to say, okay, in this moment, I can take maybe a couple of uh, mindful uh, deep breaths. Am I going to listen to a meditation? Am I going to call a friend? Am I going to listen to like, some hype music, like whatever people listen to. For me, when I want to feel hype, I'm bla uh, blasting some Lizzo. Um, <laughs> what is it? Because once we have identified that that is irrational, yes, we can hold both and say, uh, that is a fear and I get to feel those feelings. However, it's, it's irrational because I've prepared. Now, if we want to go back and we ask ourselves, we have identified something that is a very real um, um, uh, possible threat okay is there anything about that that we can either accept or can we change it you know so if i'm anxious about um i don't know maybe i, I have a date or something in, in covid world um can i ex change anything about me that i feel like someone may not like no this is who i am hmm. I like that you know yeah can i change my shirt yeah i can change that <laughs> <laughs> can I change my face? No, because I think I'm pretty cute. So, why, why, okay. Why, <laughs> why would I do that? Um, you know, very lighthearted, but I, I think uh, that also sort of 
is, is another interesting piece of anxiety for me because I, I think, uh, or the treatment to it, because that's sort of where, where the CBT, ACT-ish model sort of comes to collide. Because if you can um, accept something, that will bring relief. If you can um, change something, great. Let's figure out some actionable steps to get you what you want. Mm. Um, I think regardless of all of that, going all the way back to the start, becoming more mindful of the way anxiety uh, bubbles up for you or how you feel it, followed by really analyzing that, followed by something, some kind of action, be it acceptance, be it changing, be, uh, which could be something to the degree of reframing, meditating, walking, blasting some Lizzo, changing your shirt so you're not anxious on a date, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Sort of have those uh, options to choose from. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, ACT, and I was wondering if you can say one of the, one of the community members reached out. Um, I invited some folks to ask um, any pressing questions that they had. And um, so one person wanted to know more about acceptance commitment therapy um, as an approach in dealing with issues like anxiety or anything else, really. Um, yeah. If you, if you can say some about that. Sure. I really like ACT. ACT is one of those really cool, flexible models that I tend to draw heavily from in the work that I do. Okay. Um, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's not a tech, it's not a treatment modality that is a one size fit all kind of deal, mm-hmm. but there are really cool factors to it. Um, I think in terms of um, setting a, a, excuse me, the treatment of anxiety as well as working towards goals, it's kind of built that way. So uh, the model within itself is how can we raise awareness? How can we change or accept, period? That's it. Um, so within that, let's say if, if you are looking towards um, just about anything, even if it's outside of anxiety, if it's like maybe I have issues forming close relationships, um, especially now, I think, when, when, when we look at uh, all the isolation that um, we're collectively experiencing. Um, okay, let's first ask ourselves, what around that um, do you, what around that in terms of our feelings, our emotions, our behaviors, um, do we feel uh, are inhibiting that um, connection? Are there any um, maladaptive thoughts? So maybe, oh, I, I feel that I am unlovable. I feel that I... Um, and not a, a good friend, we would then start to work to sort of tear down and rebuild that mindset around um, a healthier mindset, like that one in which that uh, grounds you back into that truth and away from those sort of cognitive distortive crutches that a lot of, a lot of us find ourselves in. We would then move to the area of, of saying then, okay, so now that we've raised conscious, consciousness around maybe some of the mental barriers that exist with us using um, this model, how can we then either go work towards changing this aspect or just accepting? And I think within that, that model itself has naturally built in goals because that's the whole crux of the work. Um, and I think it lends itself quite nicely to things like anxiety, like things, uh, to uh, diagnoses like depression um, um, and things of that nature, especially with a lot of the presentations that I see in college students, because I do get a lot of people coming in to talk about 
uh, relational dynamics, familial dynamics, social dynamics, class right. dynamics, racial dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and like I said, it's definitely not a one size fit all uh, fits all approach, but um, it's really good at that some of those earlier stages of psychotherapy. Um, okay, so I'll just for now I'll just go through the through some of the community questions and like we can um, bounce back and forth on those. But um, yeah, so one of the questions and this may be shifting gears a little bit, but uh, how has how has COVID-19 affected uh, counseling and psychological services at Brown? Has there been, you know, a lot of departments have seen uh, budget cuts, um, austerity measures going into place. And um, I think there's a kind of, there's a nervousness about um, that impact on on CAPS. Um, If you can speak to that, I know that might be something that I have to ask the director about, but. Yeah, I can speak to that. So, um, and I, and thankfully I can speak to that. Um, you know, I, it's, it's never lost on me that, um, what we're experiencing right now, just in America and just globally, I think, um, with COVID are all, all of these unforeseen, um, uh, effects, right? And we can, that's a whole nother podcast we can get into about <laughs> right. the, the governmental um, uh, leadership or the lack thereof, but you know, I'm gonna leave it there. Um, and how that has uh, impacted us um, even more so, but I can definitely say that for CAPS, yes. So Brown as a whole, um, the last I know, they are in a hiring freeze. And a lot of their searches have either been um, uh, shut down indefinitely or just placed on a, a brief pause. Um, for CAPS, that we, we've actually not felt the effects of that. So for instance, none of our staff members have been laid off. Even our um, front desk associates who we've, they're in an integral part to our team, could, could, literally could not do my job without them. Mm. Um, also, we are now in the search for another assistant, um, or excuse me, not assistant, uh, another, um, yes, assistant director. So, and I, we were able to get that approved even during a hiring freeze. So, okay. you know, I feel pretty confident in um, Brown's um, signaling there with not only they are, they, they approved us for a vice presidential uh, position um, immediately to fill that role, um, and, and by the way, that's a new hire because the assistant, uh, the, the vice, the assistant director still works there. He didn't leave. Um, in addition to that, also this summer, our staff usually comprises, our, our summer staff is usually comprised of our front desk uh, associates, um, I believe one psychotherapist, uh, Lisa, and maybe four or five CAPS therapists. This summer, it was the majority of our staff. You know, so I think that also speaks, and I'm working three days a week. So right. I view that, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to just be real with you. I think we know where people's priorities are if we look at their receipts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say it, but <laughs> that, that's just the truth. This summer, this year, this, this semester, I think Brown has shown us that CAPS is important. Okay. You know, because the summer they had to pay us that 
had to pay us because we weren't working for free, right? I, as I said before, <laughs> I likes to eat. And <laughs> we, we have not stopped production um, on our new building either. So I, like I said, I, I think that for CAPS, and I can speak for CAPS, not really anyone else's office, we're mm -hmm. fine. And, and I believe that if we needed more resources, um, we would have the support of the administration to uh, provide that for, for our students. And uh, that's great. That's, that gives me <laughs> a lot of confidence. Like I, I've been drawing on CAPS um, services for the entire summer, mm -hmm. um, both uh, psychiatric and, and uh, therapeutic. So yeah. I've I've been one of those people who's been benefiting from from you guys working during the summer, and I really appreciate yeah. that. Um, so, the, the last four-ish questions are kind of related, so maybe we can just like flow through them. But yeah. um, what do we? One of the questions that came from a community member was, "How do we? Um, how do we speak to people?" who we might feel, uh, this is hard to say because I can never determine whether I think someone needs therapy or not, but like, yeah. but um, how do we contend with, with people who declare kind of categorically that therapy isn't something that is for them? Um, yeah. And I think, I think this question is coming from the perspective of wanting to reach out and reach out to someone and say like this could be a useful thing for you mm -hmm. um yeah yeah well that's hard i i, I will say even as a therapist if because i do get those kind of clients they will sometimes they won't necessarily say this isn't for me because caps we we're not like a mandated place we're not gonna drag you into our office mm -hmm. um you're gonna you know have to want to be there but um, I still will get clients who will come in and say, well, I, I, I want help. I provide help in the way in which I know how, and they say, well, that won't work for me. You know, I think whether it's that or, um, navigating conversations with people who are just like, nope, therapy won't work for me. It's difficult because in a lot of ways, the people who are telling them this, you know, outside of a therapeutic relationship, they're probably telling them this because they feel overwhelmed with all of the, with all of the ways that person is um, trying to treat them like a therapist. Um, mm. That's one piece, or they're just very concerned and they're realizing, well, I'm out of my depths here. I can provide you friendship, love, support, that kind of stuff. But therapy, I don't know. You know what I mean? I think in terms of navigating that though, one, one thing that I believe CAPS um, puts at the forefront of all of our work is that we respect the autonomy of our students. And I believe that too, both professionally, ethically, morally, um, and personally. If a person doesn't want that help, we can't make them. Um, mm. and, and I would argue that they're, um, and, and I also want to caveat that because obviously if a person is like a danger to themselves or others or experiencing some kind of psychosis, I, I think obviously that, that's a different conversation. But um, I, I, I truly do believe that we have to respect people's journeys. And if that's where they're at, that's where they're at. Along the way, things that people could do is just reminding them, hey, well, you know, there are always resources. I know you say it may not work for you, but what if it was just that person? You know, what if it was just those two therapists? Because sometimes they may go through a couple or a few until you, until you find the right one. Because 
Um, I tell people all the time, shop. I may, I may, like on paper, I may seem like the best therapist for you. You may meet me and be like, that ain't it. Um, mm. If that's the case, tell me that. I won't be offended. I want to get you to a person where you feel um, connected to, challenged by, and, 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 and you feel as though you trust. So, mm. and, and that's, that's, that's the way I see it. And that's the way a lot of my colleagues see it as well. Um, so, yeah, but I, 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 it can't be understated. It is difficult to navigate that, I think. Yeah. And so once we, once we do sit down with the therapist, how do we, you know, do we go about setting goals right from the start or do we just feel out the process or um, what, what is that like for you maybe? Uh, do you like to, you know, set, set expectations, mm. um, goals uh, with, a, with a client from, from the beginning? Yeah. So I, Every therapist is different. And I think therapy is that interesting, interesting thing uh, that, to be honest, I know what a lot of, I know the therapeutic styles of a lot of my colleagues and former colleagues, but I don't know what it truly means to sit in their chair because, you know, it's therapy, right? Mm-hmm. However, though I typically start every session with, hi, my name's Corey. I tell them my pronouns, he, him, his. And then I say, we have this much time together. Um, where would you like to start? In that first session, um, especially with CAPS, our model being 30-minute sessions traditionally and with some hours available uh, at the discretion of that therapist and obviously availability, um, it's important for me to be goal-oriented because I want you to leave there with something. Um, On the other hand of that, though, if I ever get a sense in that session that, oh, this person may need a follow-up or three or I need to carry this person until they graduate, you know? Mm -hmm that's my mind. And and honestly, I think all of our minds are like that all the time because we're trying to do so much at once, but that's a part of the job. I may then shift our conversation away from goal setting and just say, no, tell me about your family. That's Mm. a relationship you're in. Tell me about that. If I know, no, I'm going to keep this person for a while. I'm, I'm my, my sort of goal oriented hat is already off hanging on around. Um, if it's a person who, and these are the kind of clients I see a lot of who just come in and they just want to process like, oh, my roommate pissed me off or they're being inconsiderate or I just broke up or I'm in, or I just tried drugs for the first time, which is, you know, something that we get. I want to process that fear. That's, that could just be a one-time thing. So yeah, we are goal oriented, but I think in terms of setting goals with a person, if it's for longer term therapy, it's very slow with me. And it is a conversation, a very open and honest one. Maybe at the end of that first session, I'll say, hey, so it sounds like we've talked about these various things. What do you think you would like to get out of therapy? How do you think CAPS may help with that? What are your uh, aversions to therapy? Any uh, uh, myths that you want to talk about or talk through with therapy or through therapy? What are your fears with that? Um, We get pretty like in depth in, in terms of setting goals because at the end of the day, I have this saying, therapy works if you work. So mm. a person comes to me, I want the best for them. You know, I want them to, to be happy. I want them to feel good in, in, in their bodies and, and in their minds. But that's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I leave my office, I can't reframe for you. I can't call you out on your shit. I can't. You have to do that. Uh, you know what I mean? And, and that's I'm, hard, man. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> like calling yourself out 
sitting with yourself is not an easy thing, but I think it's some, I, I feel like it's one of those things that takes time and patience with yourself to learn and time and patience with the process of therapy, I think. Yeah. Um, and a very particular kind of awareness um, that can come with that. So I think that's a good spot to conclude unless you want to say anything more. Um, this this podcast is going to go broader than just the Brown community, but I did want to really spend time speaking about like mental health and, and you were just an ideal person to, to do that with. So um, yeah, thank you, Corey Fitzgerald from Brown <laughs> Caps. You're very welcome. Thank you, thank you Milton. <laughs> Always nice to see you and work. Yes. I think you are um, definitely one of uh, the people um, who um, make, it almost seems to you, I get the sense that it's a priority to make these discussions more visible, more uh, frequent. And that's a great thing. And I think um, just me, it, it honestly, and I'll, I'll say this, just working here for this year, that, that was a great thing for me to come into. Uh, because coming from a, a giant state university where um, there was a lot of students to serve. It was a difficult decision to leave that. But coming here, seeing that uh, there are, you know, mental health advocates on the ground also doing that work, setting that framework even outside of CAPS, it's it's inspiring to see. So thank you for what you're doing as well. All right. <laughs> take care, Corey. Yeah, take care. Thank, thank you. you.